You might have noticed the Apostle John's something of a straight shooter. Calls a spade a spade. You hear some of that sort of fisherman straight talk coming out, I reckon. Uh, maybe it's just me. Um, friends, we're talking about some important things today. How about I pray for God's help as we uh, uh, read the Bible today? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. Uh, we thank you that we can gather here today. Um, thank you that we uh, had were, were able to get out the door and get here today and sit under your word. And we pray today as we read it, we'd be changed by it. I pray that we would find comfort in Jesus. And I pray that we would grow in our assurance of salvation today and in coming days. Amen. Um, I'll ask you a question at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to sell you something. Uh, I'm not. It sounds like the back of a bad paperback. Uh, do you know the transforming power of God in your life? I know, get over it. sounds like the back of a bad book, but it's a serious question. Do you know the transforming power of God in your life? See, friends, it's, it's really easy to treat Christianity as uh, something it's not. Uh, you know, Christianity is a thing that polite, middle-class, traditional types do on Sundays. Um, so congratulations on being polite, traditional, and middle-class enough to be here this morning. You know, like, I hope you cringe at that if you're a Christian. That isn't what Christianity is about. I hope you realise that it's about the God of the whole world becoming saviour of the world, and it's about knowing God, and it's about Jesus bringing salvation to people and knowing that all who trust in him can be assured of eternal life. And now the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in his people until he returns. And one day that same spirit will raise us to eternal life, same as he did to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Polite, middle-class, traditional, do you know the transforming power of God in your life? Because friends may may laugh at polite, middle-class, traditional, but it's easy for it to look like that, isn't it? I I find that. That's my default. I'll go back to that if I'm not pursuing this power of God to change me. Let me ask you, what are your expectations for yourself and for other people uh, regarding how Jesus will change them as they walk with him? Do you have real expectations that this person will be different in a year because of the spirit at work in them? Have you experienced change? Do you expect it? Uh, You may find today's sermon challenging. Uh, It'll be challenging to think through. It'll be challenging to respond to for all of us. Uh, I hope it will lead you, though, to greater assurance of your own salvation. That's where we're heading. We're talking about assurance, and this is a really essential part of the topic according to the Bible, so we're going to deal with it because we've been talking about assurance. Um, we've been. Let me take you... We've been doing for, what, this is week six, five, something like that? One of those... Uh, Five? Great. It's week five of our assurance series. So let me tell you the route we've been, because there's a real logic to the series, and we'll be tracing the idea of assurance logically through uh, what it means to be an assured person before God. The first question you want to ask somebody with assurance, foundation of Christianity, if God was to let you, uh, if you were to die tonight and God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And you see this picture here, we're drawing a picture of what assurance looks like. Uh, What would you say? Well, the answer, I hope, is Jesus. He died for me. He rose from the dead. He gives me forgiveness for my sins. That's what the cross won for me, and I'm trusting him. And the book of Hebrews has this wonderful word for faith. The word is confidence. That's what Christian faith is. I have confidence in Jesus. Confidence in Jesus in the face of eternity. Confidence in Jesus in the face of the judgment to come. I have confidence that I'm in the right with him because of Jesus. And so I face that question. If you were to die tonight and God asked you, why should I let you in? I face it with confidence. I can confidently say, Jesus has won that salvation for me. That's the foundation of assurance. But there's more to it than that uh, because uh, we live a life 
the person claiming Jesus. Uh, we, we don't just live in that moment. We become a Christian. So I pray to prayer. Is that it? Am I eternally secure now? No matter what I do, the answer is no. There's actually, the Bible talks about running a race. The race is holding on to the confidence you had at the start for the rest of your life or until the Lord Jesus takes you or returns to claim us all. The Christian life from beginning to end is one of holding fast to our confidence in Jesus. And part of the way that the Bible defines what a Christian is, is they are the people who hold fast to their confidence through to the very end, their original confidence in Jesus to the very end. It matters a lot that you hold fast to the very end because salvation's at the end of the race. At the end of the race, at the finish line, we find we're saved from judgment, we're resurrected to eternal life and we're welcomed into his kingdom. But that didn't happen today. That happens to people confident in Jesus at the end of the race. And so the race is holding fast to our confidence in Jesus, firm to the end. Now, friends, this is the race you must, must complete. You simply must cling to Jesus the rest of your lives. It's, it's the important issue in life. And so what matters to that isn't just that you're following Jesus at this moment in time. I hope you are. Uh, what matters is that in five years, time finds you following Jesus. In ten years, whenever the Lord takes you, finds you confident in Jesus. And that can be a scary thought. Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know how hard it's going to be. You don't know what impossible challenges face you. And so you should ask this sort of question. Is finishing the race all up to me? Because if it's all up to me, I don't have confidence, let me tell you. I know enough about myself to know that my resources can't face everything life can throw at me. Uh, However, the Bible gives us wonderful, wonderful news. God is in control. God is the saviour. And God is the one who uses his infinite resources to ensure that his people get to the finish line. Um, So a couple of weeks ago... We started filling out this big picture, uh, in a, uh, just looking from God's perspective at what it means to get people to the end of the race. Can you just leave, leave your hand in one, John, because we're coming back? So put your finger in there and turn to Romans. And I just want to remind you of something we looked at two weeks ago that helps us see this big picture. Um, and we really need to see uh, how assurance fits into the big picture to be assured, because primarily assurance is about what God does, isn't it? Not what we do. So let's hear about what God does to assure people. Romans eight twenty eight. Page 1133. Um, Let's read from verse 28. It says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And there's this line of logic in verse 30 that I want us to just remember what it means here. Uh, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God does this work for the same group of people from start to finish to guarantee their salvation. So what it's saying is, before the foundation of the world, before time existed, God chose who would be his people. God chose who would get salvation in Jesus and who would get to the end of the race. And then in history, God ensured that those people came into hearing of the gospel... They were called, they were sealed by the Spirit, and they were justified, is the word it means. It would mean they were made in the right with God. God's death was applied to their lives. Jesus' death was applied to their lives. They trusted Jesus and started this race. God did that because he predestined them. And God doesn't just leave them there. By God's power, they persevered to the end of the race. Because you see what it says at the end. The same people he justified, he glorified. God, by his power, is guaranteeing that the people he predestined, he calls... And he sees through to the end of the race. And that should be really comforting. (laughs) Because you realise suddenly, whatever life throws at me, it's not up to my power to get through the next day trusting in Jesus. 
It's up to God's power to do that. That's really good news. Uh, it's the preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints, traditional way of talking about it. And it's wonderful, wonderful news. Now, last week, Stuart told us, well, how do do we keep running this race? Well, God gives us means to keep running the race. And Stuart told us about two helps for the race last week that the Bible goes on and on about, just you need these helps. They're the way God uses by his spirit to get people to the end of the race. What are they? Bible, church. Yep. Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus uses his spirit working through his word to teach and nourish his people. Uh, He uses God's people, he uses us to help each other keep running the race and holding fast to Jesus. We need to use the means that God gives us to get through the race. Um, There's there's an old story, but you might know it. Maybe I'll get it wrong, it doesn't matter. Uh, There's a man in a flood, he's on his... The roof of his house, the water's coming up and he's trusting God to save him. Speedboat comes by, you know the story. Speedboat comes by, come on board and get to the safety. No, no, I'm trusting God will save me. All right, speedback goes, helicopter comes along, get on board, I'll save you, I'll take you to safety. No, no, I'm trusting God will save me. The man drowns, meets God, and God says, what are you doing here? I sent a speedboat, then I sent a helicopter. You shouldn't be here. See, I gave you means to be saved. It's not a very accurate illustration in some ways, but God gives the means for his people to keep running in Jesus. And so the instruments God uses, his Bible and his church, means, well, we need to daily read and hear that teaching of the Bible to persevere. It's how God works in us to keep running the race. And we need to be part of a church community that believes that Bible and encourages each other to keep following Jesus. Now, lots of info, right? (laughs) It all looks rather nice for the people who are elect, people who are chosen, right? But how do you know who's chosen? This is one of the big issues here. See, we've got this story. If you look at from left to right there, predestined. I don't have access to that information. I don't know who's on that list. Called and sealed by the Spirit. Well, the Spirit is invisible, and I can't literally see the Holy Spirit in a person, so I, can't, I don't have access to that information straightforwardly. And I'm certainly not at the end of the race, and I can't see the people who get to the end of the race and are glorified as part of God's kingdom. And so you go, well, this is, this is all good and well and wonderful and very assuring for people who know they're elect. How do you know you're elect? How do you know God's chosen you? And that's really our big question for today. How can I know I'm one of God's chosen people? How can I know I'm really a Christian? Uh, The Bible warns there are people who are self-deceived about their own conversion. Uh, And so identifying who's really converted seems like a pretty important thing, I think. The Bible actually has a lot to say about recognising who's really a Christian, you know. A lot to say. Um, I know that because I read all of the New Testament this week, minus the, the Gospels and Acts. I read it looking for what signs are there in Christians that these guys are noticing and saying, wow, you're saved, you've got this. I just listed them all. Uh, through all the books, and it, you get a very uh, consistent picture. Um, basically, a Christian is anyone who's been born again by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit takes up residence in someone who's been truly converted to Jesus and begins to do what the life-giving Spirit of God loves to do, starts giving life. <laughs> he leads that person to start living the eternal life of the future in the present. Um, so there's 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And that means that where the Spirit of God is, you will always, always see the transforming power of God at work. And so we're calling it symptoms of new life because you can see that. You can see the outworking of the fact that the Spirit's in a person and giving life, gradually helping them to live the life of God's kingdom in the present. 
Okay, let's have a look at our person more closely. I hope you'll be able to help me out here. Here's a person. This is an elect person, and we're going to look at what they look like, all right? Uh, first, there's the basis of their assurance. How do you, what, what's the basis of this person's confidence that they're a Christian, that they're going to heaven? Jesus? That's a pretty good, question, pretty good answer. The foundation is always faith in Jesus. I am looking to Jesus. He is my confidence for my salvation, right? So that's primary, always looking to Jesus. How do you know they're looking to Jesus, by the way? How do you know another person's a Christian? They talk about it. They name Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They say, I trust his death. I believe he rose from the dead and conquered death. Uh, then there's uh, secondary assurance. There's another growth in, uh, growing four attributes I'm going to talk about. Um, friends, this is really important. I'll just uh, go slowly here. So there's two types of assurance in the Bible. Uh, there's foundational assurance, faith in Jesus, but there's supporting assurance, we'll call it. There's seeing the fact that this person who trusts in Jesus really is trusting in Jesus and I can see the spirit in them changing them gradually. So you can't get the second type of assurance straight away and not everybody should have it. Uh, Not everybody who names Jesus as Lord should have the second type of assurance today. Uh, I'll get to why that is in a moment. And you can't have it when you're first converted. The day you pray the prayer to be forgiven, you can't have this type of assurance. You shouldn't want to have this type of assurance yet because it's about taking time to develop It's about seeing the fact that over time, through hardship, the Spirit of God changes this person, holds on to them, and makes them more like Jesus. Let me take you through the four areas that... It's just my packaging of it. You package it differently. But these are the four areas that I think pretty accurately summarise the changes that you will see in all Christians where the Spirit of God's at work over time. The first one, head. Not that their head gets bigger, I hope. I mean, there's growth in knowledge of God. There's growth in doctrine, knowing God's will. There's growth in godly wisdom, knowing how to live God's way in the real world. All Christ- and so as you read the, um, the books of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to churches, the first thing he says is, I am so thankful for you because you know God. I see that you know God and I know he's chosen you. It's, it's evidence that God's doing something in them, that they know God and they're growing in their knowledge of God. The second one, you see where this is heading, is heart. The Spirit of God is in the heart change business. Uh, We heard Ian talk a moment ago. If you were listening, I I listened in because I was listening with ears of these categories, but Ian talked about wanting different things than before he was converted, didn't he? He talked about wanting to glorify Jesus. He was not that word. He wanted to um, have answers to his friends' questions so that he could teach them about Jesus. Those aren't natural desires. God's in the heart change business. And it isn't just that Christians know... Uh, want uh, new things positively is they find sin distasteful. We develop a new set of tastes, find sin distasteful and develop a taste for God's ways instead. Um, If you're an adult, I assume you've experienced your taste buds changing over time. I have. Uh, When I was, I suppose, 11, this was my favourite drink. Gosh, it's an awful drink. Oh, man. I can't even look at it now. It's horrible. Um... When I was, I suppose I was 11, and I went on a boys' brigade walk, and it was a coast walk, and it was in the hot sun, and we walked a whole day. We stopped at this canteen in the middle of the day. All the other kids bought lollies. I bought a two-litre bottle of Fanta. Um, And over the next two hours, I consumed that entire bottle of Fanta um, whilst walking in the hot sun, and that thought makes me vomit now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) my taste buds have changed. It's headache-inducing, sugary syrup. It's horrible, horrible stuff. See, and now my taste buds have changed. I say, well, yeah, I can drink Fanta, but why would you? It's horrible. Uh, I'm not a fan to drink anymore, and I always regret it afterwards, I tell you. See, 
The spirit of God's in the heart change business. It changes people's desires to hate sin and God, love God's ways instead. And so you come across ways to sin and Christians by the spirit of God say, well, why would I choose to sin? It's such an awful, awful way to live. Head, heart, hands. Hardly original. Obedience to God and replacing the sin in our life. Um, you'll notice there's a logic here, though. Hands, sorry, changed head, knowing God's ways, leads to wanting new things, leads to obeying. Like there's a logical progression to it. Head leads to heart, leads to hands. Um, it isn't just that Christians obey God's commands. Sin's power is broken in their lives. Uh, the Spirit of God leads people to kill off the sin in their lives and to obey God instead, which we're going to get to in 1 John in a moment, and he's going to be very, very straight about it. Uh, one final area. I'd be completely, completely misrepresenting the teaching of the New Testament if I didn't have this one. Can anybody guess what it is? We'll look... No, it doesn't start with H. I'm really sorry. I couldn't think of it. It starts with R. Jesus said, By this you will know that you're my disciples. All people will know that you're my disciples if you... Look at the picture. We're looking at a person in isolation. That is not Christianity. It's just not Christianity. This person's transformed in the head. They know God. Transformed in the heart. They want what God wants. They're transformed by their hands. They're doing obedience and replacing sin with obedience. But lastly, they're loving each other. They know other Christians and they genuinely, from the heart, love them. It brings head, heart and hands all together, actually. Love for one another. It's, I'd just be completely misrepresenting the, the change that the Spirit brings in the New Testament if we didn't have that there. It's really the combination of all the others. By the Spirit of God, God's people will love each other, find themselves in unity serving Jesus, and will learn to forgive each other and forbear with each other's difficult sides. <laughs> They'll learn to love each other. And so in the New Testament, combining these things together, you get wonderful statements about this, just looking at people. Listen to Philippians 1, 4, 6, 4 to 6. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, being confident of this... The God who began a good work in you, he's seeing these things in action. Because I'm seeing them in action, I'm confident. He will carry it on to completion, the day of Jesus Christ. He's seeing this stuff in action. He's saying, man, I know God's chosen you. You'll get there. He'll see that you get there. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How? Well, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You became imitators of us and the Lord. You, obedient. You welcome the message in the midst of severe trials. There's faith. There's knowledge. Suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became model Christians. And he says, I know God's chosen you. It's clear that the Spirit of God's at work in you and I know you'll get there. Now friends, uh, one of my great heroes, I haven't finished reading his biography yet, unfortunately, but is this guy. Does anyone know who that is? It's one of those horrible uh, sort of romantic portraits of great ones, you know what I mean. Uh, does anyone know who that is? It's a guy called George Whitfield. Uh, he had an evangelistic ministry in the 1830s. He's probably one of the greatest preachers in the history of Christianity. Uh, he was an extraordinary speaker. Uh, he'd go to a paddock and bring, begin preaching and there'd be 8,000 people there. Uh, and heaps of people became Christians. Um, it's either him or C.H. Spurgeon that hold the record for the most people spoken to without a microphone. It's like twenty or 30,000 people. Uh, and so you go to London and 20,000 people would turn up to hear him preach the gospel. Now, George Whitfield 
believed the things we've been talking about, about assurance and about real conversion, the change that the Spirit of God brings. And he saw really emotional conversions. He saw people responding in all kinds of ways. And he, was, he wasn't cynical, but he was slow to say, Far, I, know you, I know God's chosen you. He was very slow to do that because he knew that the Spirit of God would change people. And so he went to the colonies in America. He kind of went back and forth between England and America, uh, and America a little bit. Uh, and he went to America and he decided we need to start an orphanage here because that's a need here. And so he went back to England after preaching there years be- a couple of years before uh, and he went to London and he saw Christians who had become Christians under his ministry and he saw their lives transformed. He saw them know God. He saw them have hearts that desired what God desired. He saw them serving God. He saw them love each other. And he says... Now I know that God has chosen you. You responded before, you're trusting in Jesus, that's wonderful, but there's a second type of assurance you didn't have then and you do now. I know God has chosen you. Friends, the Bible insists that all Christians will have a common experience of transformation and without that experience, the genuineness of conversion is actually in question. And so we find faith in Jesus, our confidence and assurance is in him, but as we run the race... We expect to see symptoms of new life that assure us that conversion's been real, that the Spirit of God's been at work in our head, heart, hands and our relationships. And if that isn't there, it's really a cause for concern from the Bible's perspective because the life-giving Spirit gives life. And where the Spirit is, there'll be life. So friends, do you know the transforming power of God in your life? What are your expectations of yourself? if you have the Spirit, regarding how Jesus, how Jesus will change you in the coming year. I want to say you should have big expectations. I want to say as you meet with us as a church community and encourage and serve one another, I want to say as you read the Bible daily and pray daily, you should expect your life to be gradually transformed. I should expect that of myself too. It's not just polite, middle class, we do this on Sunday stuff. This is the Spirit of life is at work in us. Now you think I'm a straight shooter. Let's read 1 John. One John says a lot about what this looks like in practice. Head, heart, hands and relationships. Really, he he doesn't talk about heart heaps. Maybe that's because he's a fisherman. He's a bit of a blokey bloke. I don't know. He does talk about heart a bit. Uh, But mostly he talks about head, hands and relationships. And he says some things that sound really overgeneralized and you're just like man you can't say that but he can he's doing it by the spirit of god he's writing scripture and he'll just say over and over again here's how you can know who the children of god truly are they do this here's how you know what a genuine christian is they do this you can see it so look at chapter one verse two and we're going to start with head uh he this guy talks in circles he doesn't follow logic it's like a linear train of thought he comes back to ideas over and over around in circles so we'll just trace some ideas through the book first of all head um look have a look at chapter one verse two And this is what John says. The life appeared, we've seen it and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, we is about the apostles, what we have seen and heard, so that you also, and you can include yourself in this you also, you also may have fellowship with us, with who? The apostles. And and, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The foundation of Christian, Christianity and knowing Jesus is, isn't that we directly know Jesus, have access to knowledge of Jesus. It's that we have access to knowledge of Jesus through his apostles. That's what the New Testament is. It's the teaching of the apostles. 
the Apostles' version of Christianity is the only form of Christianity on offer. And he says some outrageous things, if that's not true. Because turn to chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. And again, we, he's talking, when he says we, he's generally talking about him and the other apostles. Look what he says. I could not say this because I'm not an apostle. He says, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of falsehood. I'm right. By definition, if you disagree with me, you're wrong. I could not say that. Uh, I certainly hope nobody else would say that. But that's not what, it's not just arrogance here. What he's saying is Jesus entrusted his gospel to his apostles. It's the gospel once for all handed down to his people, his saints, so they can know him. And so Paul can say in Galatians 1, well, even if we are an angel from heaven, preaches a different gospel than this gospel, may they be under God's curse. Because it's Jesus' gospel and we're handing it on. We're, just, we've got, we're stewards. We've got this thing that's very precious. We're handing it on to you and we have it in the New Testament today. The first mark of Christians is really that they love the teaching of the apostles and obey it. So people will sometimes say, what's the bare minimum you have to obey in the Bible? And it's just completely the wrong approach. Whoever is from God listens to the teaching of God through his apostles and whoever is not tries to pull bits out because they don't like it. Whoever listens to us from God and whoever is not from God does not listen to us is what John says, talking of the teaching of the New Testament. The Spirit of God leads God's people into holding those teachings and growing in them. So hands, he's got a lot to say about hands. Turn to chapter 1 again. And we'll see that theme uh, through 1 John. Chapter 1, verse uh, 5, he says, This is the message we, the apostles, have heard from him, God, and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. It's really simple. There's uh, light and there's darkness. If you look at the screen, uh, he's just painting this picture, isn't he? There's light and there's darkness. Uh, people, God moves people from the darkness side to the light side. So whoever lives and walks around on the light side must be from God, and whoever lives and walks around on the darkness side mustn't be from God. It's a very, very black and white way of looking at distinguishing between people, isn't it? might be a little alarming. But I'm very, very glad verse 8's there. Because it's just said, well, if we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live the truth. He's not going to give us much room to move because look what verse 8 says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us from all sins and purify us from uh, from unrighteousness. So on the one hand, Christians are people who walk in the light. But if they claim they don't sin at all, they're lying and they're self-deceived and so on. He's not giving us much room to move here. Jesus offers wonderful forgiveness that's always available to us. Yes, we sin, and he washes us clean, but he offers us new life of the Spirit to live out, and that means changed life. It means instead of sin being an integral part of our lives, it should gradually become the thing we revert back to occasionally, foolishly. Have a look what the purpose of the letter is in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So Jesus came to get rid of sin, so you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, so people sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's our confidence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, it's very easy when you hear Christianity and that there's full forgiveness in Jesus to think that sinning doesn't really matter because he's paid for it anyway. It's not true, though. Christians will be changed. They'll hate sin. And the purpose of his coming is so that we will not sin, that we'll walk in the light. He just keeps it coming. Look at verse 3. 
We know we've come to know. Look, we know we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says I know him but doesn't do what he commands, we're onto hands now. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Friends, turn to chapter 3, and it starts getting really scary. <laughs> Everyone who sins breaks the law. We heard that before. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in God keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what's right is righteous, just as he's righteous. The one who does sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and they can't go on sinning. Lots of opposing opposites. Look, so look at the screen. Disobedience, obedience. There's sin, there's righteousness. There's devil as father or God as father. There's hate or there's love. There's death or there's life. There's people who live in darkness or there's people who walk in light. And the purpose of Jesus coming is to take people from one side to forgive them, to purify them, and to teach them to walk in the light. Friends, Christians cannot experience high levels of assurance whilst they participate in low levels of obedience. And we mustn't entertain high levels of assurance of the spirit at work in us if we're making a practice of sinning, because it's straightforward self-deception. Practice of sinning, do you follow me? There's a difference between sinning and responding to that with grief, regret, disappointment, even shame, but then repentance and joy at forgiveness of sins. That on the one hand. On the other hand, there's the minimising of sin. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm just going to do it because Jesus has forgiven me anyway. I can drink Fanta, but I'm not a Fanta drinker. And I always regret it afterwards. This is what the Spirit of God does in us. And we're so thankful that Jesus washes our sins clean because we need it. Lastly, there's relationships. Uh, And in his characteristic style, John will leave you as to no doubt how important this is for knowing who's a real Christian or not. Um, Let's just skip to chapter 3, verse 7, I think. Yeah, that's great. Chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 7, sorry. Um, We didn't read this before. You'll hear the characteristic, call a spade a spade. Dear friends, verse 7, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, does not love, does not know God because God's love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love's made complete in us. See, it's hands, heart, head combined. Some people think of love just as feelings. I feel good about that person. Well, he's not going to have that. Look down at verse uh, 16. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone sees his material, has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words of speech, but with actions and in truth. Friends, I read that uh, yesterday, and then I heard Stuart talk about that disaster. And I'm just like, how can I look at that situation and do nothing? And we've heard a way we can do something. 
that's the mark of the Spirit of God at work in people. We've got material possessions in abundance, all of us. Let's help those people. People in our immediate vicinity as well. Because it's not just feelings, it's heart. It's also hands. It's doing things. Now, some people make a mistake with that, don't they? They say, oh, I'll just love people with hands, but I'm not going to feel good about them. I'm going to grip my teeth and I, I'm going to love them, but I'm not going to like them. 1 Peter one twenty two says, we need to love from the heart. Uh, it's not love if there isn't developing affection and concern for the other person. And you look at how it's head, heart, hands combined, and love's no longer a weak sentiment, is it? It's actually the main thing that makes us look like God. It's uh, a strong thing to love. It takes everything you've got. It takes knowing what's good for people. It takes developing desire to serve them. It takes using all we have, even when it's painful, to serve them and help them. Friends, the Spirit of God brings head, heart, hands, relationships change. Uh, from conversion to the end of the race, the Holy Spirit progressively transforms God's people to be more like Jesus. There's this uh, wonderful statement in 1 Peter 1.10. It says, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort. Why does he say that? Because people by the Spirit of God whose head, heart, hands and relationships are being changed, are having their election, having the fact that God chose them confirmed. Because only the Holy Spirit over time can see people sustainably grow in Jesus and live new life for him. So we've been talking about experiencing God's transforming power and uh, it's fairly heavy, isn't it? There's lots of possible responses. Um, Perhaps you're feeling like you're going well. Uh, if you feel like you're going well in the race, I hope you are. Don't pace up in the back, though. Um, whatever you do, keep pressing on and thank God for what he has done in your life. It's not arrogant to do that. It's just thankful. If the Spirit of God has done wonderful things in your life, praise God for it and keep going. Make every effort to keep confirming your election and calling. Uh, it should lead to more effort. Uh, many of you may be trusting Jesus, but you haven't really seen any growth for a while. And perhaps today that kind of assurance isn't yours. And perhaps today that level of that kind of assurance, the secondary kind of assurance shouldn't be yours because you just haven't seen the work of God in your life recently. But you're called to press on towards that assurance. God wants you to have it. So earnestly ask God to transform you by his spirit and make use of the helps he gives you, his Bible and his church. It's the same message. Make every effort to confirm your election and calling and keep trusting Jesus. I do want to say one more group, though. You may be sitting there despairing of what I've just said, and that might be entirely reasonable. Um, Stuart and I would love to pray with you and help you with that. God gives his church as helps for the race, and we consider ourselves resources at God's disposal for your good, and it would be our joy to help you. But let me just tell you, so talk to us if that's you, but I'd love to say just two things to people if they're despairing at the moment. If these things are causing you grief, that's a good sign. <laughs> Because it means you want to stop sinning. It means you want to obey. It means you see what is on offer by the Spirit here and you want it. And that itself is very often the work of the Spirit. The other thing I want to say, though, is your lack of assurance might actually be a God-given blessing. You see, if there's lack of changed life, and especially if there's continual unrepentant sin in your life, the Spirit of God uses lack of assurance as an alarm bell to wake us up from slumber, to turn to Jesus again 
and to rely on God's spirit to run the race strongly, to turn away from sin because if you walk in the light, walk away from the darkness. If it's a God-given alarm system in your life at the moment, it's designed to bring you to repentance of that sin. It's designed to bring you back to recommitment to God and trusting in his son. So that's the main thing I would say to you if you're despairing at the moment. We'd love to talk to you about that. Friends, whoever you are, expect. This is what assurance looks like in the real world when God's spirit's really at work. Expect the transforming power of God's spirit to make a measurable difference in your life over the coming year, two years, whatever period of time. Big picture, over time. How about we pray for God's help? (laughs) Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, we have an advocate with you, the risen Lord Jesus, who has died to pay for our sins. Thank you so much that everybody who trusts and depends on him, who has confidence in him, uh, is assured of eternal life with you. Father, we, each one of us, would like to see in ourselves and in each other more and more symptoms of this new life, more and more signs of your grace and your spirit powerfully at work in us. Uh, Where we've been slumbering on these things, we pray that your word would have new life in our eyes. We'd wake up to what it's saying and it would transform our hearts so we want the way you want that we'd obey your commands, that we'd hate sin and just find it distasteful and wonder why you'd ever live that way, that each one of us would grow in our love and knowledge of you and our love of each other. Please help each one of us where we're struggling and please help each one of us to find full assurance of our own election as we see the Spirit at work. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.